Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be speaking with Clifford S. Deutschman, MD, FCCM. Dr. Deutschman is a speaker at this year's Critical Care Congress, presenting on Sepsis Redefined, Why Do We Need a New Definition?, Dr. Deutschman is Vice Chair of Research in the Department of Pediatrics and Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Medicine at the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Children's Medical Center in New Hyde Park, New York. Dr. Deutschman also serves as Director for the Center for Pediatric Research at the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research in Manhasset, New York. Welcome, Dr. Deutschman. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) So, Cliff, what's all this fuss about sepsis? Why do we need new definitions? Well, the fuss about sepsis goes back a long time, and you of all people know that best because one of the first articles any of us ever read about sepsis was something that you were the first author on, um, and none of us have forgotten that. Um, the, the fuss relates to, first of all, the, the lack of update of previous definitions. The initial definitions were the results of the consensus conference in 1991, They were marginally revised by a second consensus conference in 2001 and basically have been left largely unchanged since that time. We have discovered in the interim a great deal more about the pathophysiology of sepsis. Uh, We've learned a great deal more about the epidemiology. On the other hand, there's still a tremendous amount we don't know. Very early on in the course of the discussion about the original and revised sets of guidelines, issues were raised. The initial sets of guidelines brought to us the SIRS criteria, the systemic inflammatory response criteria, which basically were markers for inflammation, and the assumption was that in the presence of inflammation with infection, um, patients had sepsis. When they developed organ dysfunction, organ failure, Uh, That became severe sepsis, another term that first appeared uh, with these 1991 definitions. The most recent analysis uh, pretty clearly demonstrate, and there are a couple of very nice papers that we'll talk about, that relying on the SERS criteria, number one, will, will create a situation where a pretty fair number of patients who are very severely ill and who meet virtually anybody's gestalt for sepsis would not meet these criteria. On the other hand, there are a tremendous number of patients who do meet these criteria but wouldn't be considered critically ill, let alone septic. So uh, on the one hand, we have both false positives and false negatives with the SERS criteria, and it's pretty clear that something needed to give. The second thing is a philosophy, if you will, that emerged during the course of of the discussions. To backtrack a bit, um, there was a recognition a number of years ago that something needed to be done. Uh, The SCCM and the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, the ESICM, set up a joint task force that I co-chaired with Mervyn Singer from uh, University College London to examine this. Very early in our discussions, it became abundantly clear that there was something wrong with the whole notion of there being a definition I'll speak about this in in depth tomorrow, but if you go to the dictionary, it says that a definition is the essence of something. It's what something is. And I would challenge anybody on the planet to tell me what sepsis is. So we had sort of 
used definition as this pliable, malleable term that could be changed to fit what it was we were capable of measuring. And that's really not what a definition is supposed to be. The flip side of it is, is that there are a huge number of practitioners who are faced with an infected patient who's looking like they're about to get really sick at 2 o'clock in the morning in the middle of nowhere with limited resources. What are they to do? What they needed was something different than a definition. What they needed were clinical criteria that would help them identify the patient who was likely to get really sick in a hurry. So we identified two very clear goals. The answer to the definition involved looking at the best experimental and clinical evidence we had about the pathobiology, and by that I mean physiology, immunology, organ function, et cetera, et cetera, a conglomerate biochemistry of all kinds of things that contribute to badness. We looked at what we knew about this pathobiology and derived something that we thought more clearly approximated what sepsis is, recognizing full well that we have a long way to go. On the other hand, we also decided that it would be appropriate, now that we have large databases of clinical information, to see if we couldn't do a data-driven approach to identifying the patients who are likely to be septic. The problem with that, of course, is there's no gold standard. You can't take an x-ray and hold it up and say, aha, sepsis. There's no biopsy. The best you can do is use epidemiological criteria for validity and determine if, by standards of validity, this patient is likely to have sepsis. The best ones that, that the people who did this, and this was led by Chris Seymour, uh, out of the University of Pittsburgh and Manu Shankar Hari from London, um, the best that they could do was to say a patient with sepsis is one who is infected or likely to be infected and dies early in the course or spends three or more days in the intensive care unit. This is what they call outcome validity. It's an outcome that correlates with what we think sepsis ought to look like. When they did this, they were able to come up with interesting clinical criteria. Now, Chris did it for sepsis, and we eliminated the term severe sepsis, and I'll come back to that in a minute, and discovered a number of using uh, statistical and mathematical analysis that's far beyond my ability to understand, um, came up with a construct, a series of clinical criteria that was pretty good at identifying the patients who had these poor outcomes. So, Take a step back. The definition that we came up, the one that incorporates the best of the pathobiological evidence that we have available to us, says that sepsis is life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. Key terms in here, organ dysfunction. So sepsis is what severe sepsis used to be. Severe sepsis goes away. It was confusing people. And dysregulated host response. Again, the problem with this is, what's a regulated host response? This sets very clear goals for those of us who do investigative work, particularly in animals, and it also paints, I think, a clearer picture of what the gestalt, what sepsis is. What the mathematical analysis, the identification of, of factors from uh, patient criteria, were able to identify is something that we hope will take the place of SIRS. Three factors a systolic blood pressure less than 100, a respiratory rate greater than 200, and a change in mental status, which was a variation on a change of a mildly abnormal Glasgow coma score, identified with pretty good reliability 
patients in the emergency department or on the wards, not in the ICU, but in these two non-ICU settings, patients who went on to die or spend three or more days in the ICU. The analysis is area under the receiver-operator curve. One is perfect. This had a, an RUC in the, in the emergency department of 0.84, which is pretty good. Not bad. It fell down in the ICU primarily because we control ventilation. We sedate people. Mm-hmm. We give them drugs that will change their blood pressure. It's kind of hard for those things to hold up. So septic shock is, again, a little bit different. We had another philosophical argument. What is the purpose of having septic shock as a separate, discrete entity. Some people argued that septic shock was cardiovascular dysfunction. It was sepsis plus cardiovascular dysfunction. Well, how is that different from sepsis where with organ organ dysfunction and the organ is the cardiovascular system? Others of us took a slightly different view and where we ended up was saying that yes, it was cardiovascular dysfunction. It was also cellular and metabolic abnormalities that were associated uh, with poor outcome. Again, this goes back to a philosophical thing. We don't treat septic shock any differently than we treat sepsis. Correct. We don't know enough about the underlying pathophysiology to say that they're different entities. Why does it need to exist? And the best we could come up with was to say, well, septic shock is really bad sepsis, where the outcome is really bad as opposed to just bad. And when but the, either way, the outcomes can be bad. Yes. The way the data-driven analysis worked out was it started with a Delphi process asking people to identify what they thought the components of septic shock were, and then synthesizing them and see how combinations of those identified components did in terms of categorizing patients on the basis of, of outcome, of, of mortality. What we found was that patients who, what this is Mano Shankar Harry's work, what he found was that patients who had hypotension with a mean blood pressure of 65 or less and required pressors to keep it there and had a lactate greater than 2 millimoles per liter had a mortality in excess of, of 45%, whereas the entire septic population as a whole from the same data sets was in the neighborhood of 15 to 20%. Mm-hmm. So again, this is twice the mortality. It clearly fits the criteria of really bad outcome. So what we have on the one hand is this new definition of sepsis, life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection, a new definition, if you will, of septic shock, sepsis where cardiovascular and or cellular and metabolic abnormalities result in mortality far in excess of sepsis alone. We have new clinical criteria. We have the so-called Q-SOFA score outside the ICU, where the respiratory rate, the systolic blood pressure, and the mental status act as a prompt to identify patients who are likely to have poor outcomes. And we have the combination of pressor-dependent hypotension and an elevated lactate identifying patients who have a very high mortality twice that seen in the septic patients across the board. Again, new definitions, new clinical criteria. Something that's good for those of us who work in a laboratory, something that's good for the people who work in the emergency department. So you were aiming to come up with a definition, if you will, for lack of a better term, that was of practical use to the clinician at the bedside. And how does this play into 
research definitions. It seems to me that to some extent the previous definitions were perhaps reasonably good for selecting patients for clinical trials, but a little bit less good for identifying patients at the bedside. You have now come up with a way to identify the patients at the highest risk of mortality, and how does that play into selecting patients for clinical trials? To take half a step back, I think actually if you asked the original group of of individuals who came up with those original definitions, and some of them were in the room, they would have told you that identifying appropriate entry criteria for clinical trials was one of their thoughts, but only one of them. Mm -hmm. The SERS criteria clearly identified the patients who were quote-unquote septic. It also identified a whole lot of patients who weren't. The way my colleague Mervyn Singer put it is that it, on the one hand, it would identify really sick patients. On the other hand, it would identify somebody who would get better with a cup of tea and a a (laughs) dose of antibiotics. Um, So... Again, they were very useful at the start. They've outlived their usefulness. What we hope is, on the one hand, we have a series of pathobiological constructs, organ dysfunction, dysregulated host response, that give the laboratory people something to shoot at, that give people working at the bedside something to look for. Aha, this patient has white cells that look funny under a microscope. Maybe that's a dysregulated host response. This patient has an NGAL that's higher than it ought to be. Maybe that's part of the dysregulated host response. A dilated vasculature, et cetera, et cetera. So the people at the bedside will be able to recognize something that they see before their eyes to take back to the laboratory and say, why don't you look at this a little Mm -hmm. bit harder? Mm -hmm. That's sort of from a definitional point of view. From a clinical criteria point of view, what... Q-sulfa, and we've also, I should add that for patients who become septic while in the ICU, the SOFA score, which has been around for a couple of decades now, an increase in the SOFA score of two points also does a great job of identifying people uh, using this area under the curve for mortality or three days in the ICU. That works much better than anything else in the ICU. So one or the other of these can serve the same purpose that the SERS criteria were originally derived to serve, but they do it better because they, they don't give you all the false positives, mm-hmm. all these mm-hmm. patients who would get better with a cup of tea. <laughs> um, so we hope that by using this dual approach, we've given the bench investigators something to work with. We've given the clinicians at the bedside something to look for to hand to the bench investigators. We've given somebody at the bedside something to look for to identify a patient who might be someone you want to investigate a little further, might be someone you want to watch very closely. And we've also provided, we think, perhaps, and this will need to be checked, entry criteria for clinical trials that are a little more robust than the SERS criteria. Now, again, the caveat on all of this is this was tested on a number of data sets. It was derived from the University of Pittsburgh medical record. It was validated in a couple of other data sets, mostly in the United States, including the VA, and one from Europe. It needs to be worked worked through in other European uh, data sets. It needs to be applied to resource-poor environments, uh, South America, Africa, uh, parts of Asia. It may not hold. And the most important thing of all is it needs to be examined prospectively, which has never been done. This is all retrospective analysis. And we would strongly encourage anybody to start looking at these things as soon as possible. We know this is going to be controversial. We hope it will be controversial. We hope that 
this is sepsis three, that sepsis four won't take 10 years, that we'll be there in a couple of years, that things will get better. There are concerns about the ongoing validity of the SOFA score, which has been around for a long time and contains some things that are no longer valid, like dopamine doses. We hope that somebody will do the work that's necessary to come up with a better SOFA score. Uh, we didn't have the funding or the time to do it, but it, it clearly needs to be done. So on top of, we hope, providing all these targets, we also hope it provides a challenge to everybody to look at what it is we've placed in front of them and to be as skeptical as they can possibly be about everything we've said and then prove us wrong. What are the major controversies with this approach that you've taken? Where, where do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've already talked about the SOFA score. I yeah, suppose that's I, well, one of them. <laughs> um, maybe the most controversial thing of all has been the lactate. When you look at QSOFA, now lactate has turned out, an elevated lactate has pretty good prognostic value as a marker for impending badness. And yet when you take QSOFA, the three elements we talked about, and add a lactate of greater than two, greater than three, or greater than four to it, it really doesn't improve terribly much. It improves a little bit, but not enough to make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. What we've got in QSOFA is three bedside measurements, no labs, no x-rays, no nothing. You don't have to draw blood. You don't have to do anything more than look at your patient, um, talk to your patient. We thought that was pretty beneficial. But there are people who point out correctly that lactate has been a good prognostic factor and ask why we didn't include it. Well, there's the data are the data. There are also places in this world where the measurement of lactate is not something that can be done routinely. The flip side of it is we did include the lactate level in the new clinical criteria for septic shock. People have a problem with that. People also have a problem with the notion that you have to have both hypotension and pressors and lactate to meet the new criteria for septic shock. Can't you just have an elevated lactate alone? Isn't that circulatory insufficiency? Well, I don't know. Isn't yeah. that a marker of altered metabolism? Again, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But the data say that when you have these three things together, the mortality is astronomically higher. And that's kind of what we went by. But we certainly expect you know, a lot of controversy on this. And we expect um, and have heard from, from people in places where resources are, are limited that this is going to be a problem for them, that they've just managed to get people to start looking at SERS criteria, and now we're going to change it on them. Did you address the criteria in children? Do these definitions no. apply in pediatrics? Where is pediatrics with, in the world of sepsis? This is a great question, and as a newly minted pediatrician on Oris Causa, it's important to me personally. No, <laughs> we restricted ourselves to patients 18 or older. There are ongoing efforts to examine children's databases, to some extent, it will be easier. There are some pretty good data sets on critically ill patients. On the other hand, it may be more difficult. Mortality becomes a very different story in children. It's much lower than it is in adults. So the idea that you can use mortality as an endpoint the way we did in deriving QSOFA is, is unlikely to hold. Mm -hmm. um, how many days in an ICU? Uh, you know, even determining what the outcome validity variables will be is something that needs to be discussed. There are ongoing efforts to look at both sepsis and organ failure slash dysfunction in the pediatric population. Jerry Zimmerman is leading those. We're hopeful that we will be able to start doing database investigations fairly soon. We, we've had a number of discussions and we're getting close. And I think actually the first order of business will be, once we've decided what an outcome variable is, does QSOFA work for kids?
Mm-hmm. And of course, it will have to be age adjusted. Of course. So now we take these definitions. Where do we go from here? What's the next step? Well, for me, as you know, as a bench person, as a bench top person, and somebody who's uh, moved away from clinical practice for a year and a half and uh, and is focusing on pathobiological studies, it's easy. What's organ dysfunction? What's a dysregulated host response? First, what's a regulated host response? Where does it become dysregulated? There are all kinds of things to look at. I would be giving away secrets if I told you exactly what it is we're interested in, but you, you can certainly see where it might be. You know, what is it about smooth muscle that doesn't work properly in the setting of sepsis, and how is it different from adaptive vasodilatation, if you will? Uh, that's one thing. The next step is find something better. Look at the clinical stuff and find something better. Show that what Chris has come up with, what's in Q-sulfa, what Manning's come up with in the septic shock criteria. Do they work or do they not? Try them in other settings. Try them in other patient populations. Try them prospectively. And if you're a clinician at the bedside and you notice that uh, in every one of your patients who goes on and ends up in the ICU for a long, prolonged period of time, you know, the, the first calcium level comes back at 4.1%. Maybe we should be looking at hypocalcemia. Find us something better. That's what sepsis 4 will be about. It's the next iteration, just as we think that Q-SOFA slash SOFA increasing by two or more is an improvement on SERS. Sepsis 4, we hope, will be an improvement on on Q-SOFA. And we look forward to that happening, and somebody else can be in charge of it. So you, <laughs> you think these new definitions, when you say it's an improvement, it's easy to use, it, at least from what you have so far, will identify those patients at highest risk of severe illness. It's really not the patient with a little fever and a UTI who's going to get better with that cup of tea that we're so concerned about identifying. It's the ones who are at high risk. Right. And so this would seem to be a relatively easy-to-use quick to assess way of trying to identify those patients. That, that's certainly to be hoped. And again, remember, that's the clinical criteria, not the definition. <laughs> yes. Criteria. That's, our initial analysis would say that's true. Now, again, it's, it's, it's a little tricky because we don't know that the way this was done was with retrospective data analysis and a data set. So whether or not it acts as a prompt for somebody who's going to become septic as opposed to just identifying somebody who later in the course turned out to be septic uh, is hard to say, and that's why the prospective evaluation is going to be so important. You know, can this act as an early warning system? We hope so, but it takes a prospective analysis mm-hmm. to, make mm-hmm. that the ca- to make that case. But yes, I, I think the single biggest thing we will get out of this, based on the data that we've seen and the analysis that we've seen, is eliminating a tremendous number of false, of false mm-hmm. positives. Mm-hmm. You know, patients who look a little bit sick and maybe even have a soft blood pressure, but who get better very quickly with uh, a, a little fluid and, 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 and a couple and of doses of antibiotics. Yeah, yeah, very good. Is there anything else you want to add? This has really been a great summary of all of the, I'm sure, not simple efforts that your group has uh, made. And I, I think it's going to be a little bit challenging to if you will, implement these uh, criteria or kind of turn the Titanic away from SERS. <laughs> yes. One of those great big, you know, super super tankers that 
take two years to, to turn around. Yeah. Well, first of all, the obvious is to thank the SCCM and the ESICM for supporting this effort. The truth is that this whole effort started with a conversation that Andy Rose, who was then the ESICM president, and I had, I think in about 2010, and I credit where credit's due, it was Andy's idea, not mine. The support has been great. I would say the same about the 19 brilliant and brilliantly opinionated individuals who are on the task force. And to really thank all the people, now again, what we did with this once we had them was we sent them to a lot of different critical care-oriented societies to ask for endorsement uh, and invite their comments. And we're really grateful to the people who, who provided us with, with constructive comments because they really did help us sharpen our thinking and point out where, where the issues were going to arise so that we could look at them and, and recognize that some of them we hadn't dealt with and couldn't deal with, and some of them there was an answer. You know, again, to thank the people who have already contributed, to thank the people who will contribute in the very near future, and to thank whoever's in charge of the next task force because it isn't going to be me. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking Thanks, with Margaret. us. Thanks, Margaret. It's been great. It really has. We've been talking today with Dr. Cliff Deutschman from the Cohen Children's Medical Center in New Hyde Park, New York, about the sepsis redefined, why do we need a new definition? This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.